Well, I'm thinking about like think about like ants, uh, and you look at that, and you, you might be able to say, well, um, we 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 might maybe we should ascribe mental states to ants because doing so enables us to explain and predict their behavior. You know, why why are they building these complex structures? Well, it's because they have desires to, or they want to please the queen or something. Uh, yeah. And then people come, you know, the biologists come around and like, no, they're automaton or something. Um, so I, I think that, yeah, if I were an ant, I think it'd be more justified for me to be like, of course, Steve, the other ant has a mental state like mine. We're of the same kind, but he might be in a better position as an ant than I am, uh, <laughs> you know, <laughs> uh, making all the proper adjustments there. Uh, I see. So, well, if you were an ant, I guess you would know whether you were conscious. Right. And then like you hear some biologists saying ants are not conscious. Right. Then you would just know that he's wrong. <laughs> totally. And right. Then, and I it's guess, the same, and, same thing with us where we have, you know, uh, illusionists or someone being like, yeah, consciousness is illusion. It's like, well, you're, you're wrong because I'm, <laughs> you know, and, and so, but, but the alien observing, uh, the illusionist philosophy talk might be like, Hmm, I, I, I looks like they are conscious to me, but this dude's saying that they're not, and I'm not of the same kind as them. Mm. So maybe I'm not as in as good of a position as the audience is. Hey, welcome back to another episode of Parker's Pensies. I'm your host, Parker Sedicase, and this is a podcast where we explore all the deepest ideas in philosophy, theology, nature, and life. I love thinking about cool stuff, so come think with me. Today's episode is very, very special. Um, I have a someone who hasn't been on very much. Um, Mike Humor, just kidding. He's been on a bunch, and uh, we we're joking that we're gonna have to change the name to Parker and Mike's Pensies because he's been on so much. It's not my fault. He he he's so good at everything that uh, we could have him on every other episode, and I I plan on it. You know, <laughs> keep getting him on. Um, he is a huge broad scope that he publishes in, so not just thinks about, but like publishes papers in. So today we're gonna be talking about the problem of other minds, which. Is one of my favorite puzzles in philosophy. How do you know that I have a mind? Yeah, I look like you maybe, but like, how, how are you justified in that belief? How do you know that I have a mind like you? You have different evidence than I have direct awareness of my mental states. I don't have them of yours. So that's what we're going to talk about. And we're going to get into some AI stuff too. Like how could we ever know that an artificial intelligence, you know, is intelligent or is conscious or how would we even know that? So we're going to get into that. I'm really excited for it. Before we jump in, if you guys like this podcast, if it's your top five, if somewhere in your top five, then please consider becoming a Patreon patron or joining my YouTube members. I now have exclusive content for you guys as well that I will only be sharing there. So you can go and find two videos on uh, apologetics there. You can find uh, a bunch of other perks, a bunch of merch and stuff over there too. So click the link in the description wherever you're getting this podcast at and please help me keep the lights on. Help me keep luring uh, Dr. Mike Humor back on and help me feed my puppies. Um, that's probably enough. Let's jump in with Dr. Humor on the problem of other minds. Dr. Humor, thanks so much for coming back on again. Yes, thanks for having me uh, and the generous introduction. <laughs> um, I always think about, I mean, we've talked about this before, but I always think about you were at a philosophy conference and, and the introducer was the announcer, whoever was talking about... Uh, was trying to describe you and they're like this is Mike humor and he does philosophy generally construed yeah <laughs> it's, it's so there's my aos <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome um so this one's another fun one because we're talking about the mind uh you have this paper dualism and the problem of other minds 
I didn't, you know, you sent me a Word document, so I didn't see like the reference. Where, where's this going to be published at? Where, where's this coming? coming so through? this is for Oxford Studies in Philosophy of Mind. Nice. It was invited. It was invited awesome. by Uriah Kriegel. That's so good. Um, so since you have such a broad scope, like why think of Mike Humor for the problem of other minds? Is that because you've done a book on like paradoxes and stuff? I, I don't know if you have a, a book on the philosophy of mind yet. No, no, I don't. It's, uh, you know, one of the remaining gaps in, okay. in my publication list. I've got to get to that next. Um, awesome. Well, he wanted to do a volume with issues at the intersection of epistemology and philosophy of mind. Okay, okay. so he's a philosopher of mind. And uh, I guess he thought, you know, humor could do something <laughs> at this intersection. So I, I, I thought, well, you know, I have an idea about other minds. So, which I thought of when I was an undergraduate, you know. Oh, nice for my senior thesis, which I wrote for John Searle. Uh, so there's but something there. Yeah. It's like a, you know, yeah, like a 30 year old thesis or something, which I can still find. I thought I, I thought I lost it, but then I found it on old compact discs. That's hilarious. Does it, does it still stand up? Like, is that where you develop this paper off of your thesis? Yeah, it's the same argument. Nice. I think, uh, you know, I think I've become more scholarly a little bit. <laughs> that's, <laughs> so. good. that's good to hear. Oh man, that's awesome. Well, um, yeah, can you lay it out for us? What, what, for those who aren't familiar, what is the problem of other minds? This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Oh, yeah. I mean, the short version is how do you know that other people are conscious and not just mindless automata? Yeah. Right. And, you know, in setting this up, usually you you make a point about how you can't actually observe people's mental states. You can only observe their physical behavior. And so it's logically possible that that behavior would be caused by um, purely physical causes without, without any mental states, right? Which, you know, like maybe that's what happened when you have computers that are trying to simulate simulate human like thoughts or something. Yeah. So, um, yeah, you think, okay, so, and you wonder about how um, how you could know about that. And then you think, well, maybe there's like some kind of inductive argument or something like, you know, I look at what physical states cause my mental states and then I see those physical states happen to another person. Mm -hmm. Like, OK, so maybe that will cause the same mental states in them, you know, but then that's that seems like a really weak argument, you know, because you only have one. <laughs> person that you've observed the mental states of yeah it's an inductive yeah. argument from a single case which is yeah. not the best to use it seems like as a matter of fact the worst inductive <laughs> argument that actually counts as yeah. inductive at all yeah um you know and then like some people say oh no it's not really from one case because you can observe many occasions on which you have mental states of a particular kind mm -hmm. so it's many cases in some sense right Okay, but you know, you think like, well, I mean, what if I was making, what if I was a medical researcher and I was making inferences like this, right? Uh, like I had a medical treatment and I tried it on me and it worked. 
and I have only ever tried on me. But don't worry, like I tried on me 10 times, right? Like yeah. I got a cold 10 times, I tried this remedy. Like, can yeah. I now say, yeah, it's almost certainly working on everyone. Mm. <laughs> no. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. Okay, so so the move there, yeah, you start start with yourself. I, I love this problem because I think at first it's like, well, <clears throat> for, for the uninitiated, it, it seems silly. It's like, well, yeah, of course other people have minds. You go, well, how do you know? You know, how, 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 how do you know that? Because think about how you know that you have a mind and then you don't get to use that evidence for me. Just like you're saying here. And yeah. then it starts to mess with people and you think, well, maybe, maybe I live in a computer simulation. Maybe, maybe I'm just, you know, maybe I'm a solipsist and nothing really exists. Um, yeah. which is, well, I, so, yeah, I mean, well, I should say like, I don't take the problem to be to figure out whether there are other minds okay. that is, yeah. uh, I take it that we, we all believe that there are other minds and that we know it. Yeah. And so then there's just like a puzzle as, to explain how we know it. Right. Like, yeah. so, you know, we could go through some different accounts of how you would know it and then like, see how they're, they face difficulties. Right. And you're trying to figure out yeah. what the best account is, but you know, it's pretty puzzling. Yeah. Yeah. You make that point that this isn't, uh, this isn't like a skeptical worry, uh, or it, it can be, but you're not treating it that way. And it's not like the psychological uh, or developmental question of like, when does a child think that other people have minds, but it's like, no, we, we have this. So would you say your, is your approach like a particularist approach saying we obviously know there are other minds. So now how do we go about explaining that? Yeah, I mean, you know, this fits with the rest of my sort of common sense philosophy, right? <laughs> like, if there's something that's completely obvious, then, mm. you know, it's not on the table to say that that thing isn't the case, right? Yeah. Let's just figure out why it's the case. Yeah. Um, and, you know, like the, the level of certainty that I have that there are other minds is extremely high. Yeah. Right. Like, you know, the, and, you know, any other normal person, right? Like, you tr you treat that hypothesis, you treat the hypothesis of no other minds the same way like you would treat the brain in a vat scenario, which mm -hmm. is to say you get to completely dismiss it in normal context. Yeah. Okay. So now, you know, like one of the problems with the argument from analogy is like, it seems to only give you like a slight probability or something like that. Like, mm -hmm. oh yeah, it's kind of plausible that maybe there are other minds. It doesn't explain why it's just like not even a reasonable <laughs> alternative to consider that they're mindless automata right yeah 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 it, it kind of um it kind of legitimizes the question by trying to treat it on its own terms but doing so with like super slight evidence yeah um, yeah that's that, you know that happens with a lot of philosophical responses to skepticism i, I would say <laughs> or at least some you know you're like oh yeah, yeah, the brain of that scenario, oh, it's just too complex. No, we know this. Yeah. Even if that was true, right? Like that only makes it slightly worse than the real world. Yeah. I guess with the, the common sense answers, some some might be easier than others, like like uh Moore's Moore's proof is like here's a hand and here's another one, but it might be a little bit different, like here's a mind and here's another one. And it's like, yeah. well, where? Where is this mind? Yeah, I think well, I I guess <laughs> Yeah, what's the Morian version of this? Like, well, <laughs> Parker has a mind, obviously, so therefore there are other minds. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> that's good. Oh man. Um, okay, so so that's the argument from analogy, and it's an inductive. Uh, it's induction from a single case, so it's not super great. You also uh, mentioned this perceptual theory that we can directly observe facts about mental states of others. Um, mm. Yeah, why would anyone go in for this? 
Yeah, you know, it's like weird at first glance, right? Um, you saw the anger. Wait, how do you see somebody's anger? What color is anger? Like, <laughs> well, you know, the idea is like, okay, a person makes a certain expression on their face, and then you can just see that they're angry. Hmm. Like, okay, does that count as actually observed or is that inferred? Mm-hmm. Well, uh, you know, like actually most of the things that you say that you observe, um, there's a certain amount of unconscious information processing that has to go on. Yeah. So like you say, you saw that there was a cat on a mat, but some kind of information processing had to go on in your brain for you to recognize the cat as a cat and the mm-hmm. thing as a mat and like, and even like, you're like to recognize lines or something. So anyway, right. Yeah. So, but you didn't consciously infer that like when you looked, it just looked like, you know, consciously it was just like an experience of, Oh, obviously there's a cat on the mat. Okay. But the thought is, well, I mean, seeing other people's um, emotional states is kind of like that. You don't consciously figure out, like you're not aware of going through any reasoning process to get to that person was angry. Um, rather, it's just like, it just immediately strikes you that they're angry. Yeah. Okay. So, um, right. So, you know, you might think, um, okay, am I, well, okay. So just perceiving that P in general typically involves unconscious information processing. Okay. Yeah. So does it involve reasoning? Like, as in, you know, when you go through a proof and you actually reason. So it seems like, well, it doesn't. Right. Well, you might say, oh, maybe I'm unconsciously reasoning. And then you might want to kind of draw a distinction between unconscious reasoning and non-conscious information processing that doesn't even count as <laughs> unconscious reasoning. Yeah. Okay. Like you might want to say, oh, when you see the cat on the mat, that's like not even unconscious reasoning. <laughs> Mm-hmm. why okay i don't know maybe it's because it's um subpersonal so the processing is being done by um mechanisms in your brain that are not people <laughs> so, yeah and, and that are not in principle able to be conscious okay and then and you know you think of things like well um i would not myself be able to identify the premises of the inference that I'm supposedly making, right? If you want to say that I'm unconsciously making inferences. So like a lot of the stuff that goes on when you perceive the world, you wouldn't be able to identify how the processing works. You wouldn't be able to identify the premises. And even if somebody told you the premises, you wouldn't recognize them, right? So like when I, if I recognize your voice, I can't um, articulate the properties of your voice that enables me to recognize it as you specifically. Oh, that's a good point. Well, so, um, sorry to, to break the, the line of thought here, but I'm wondering if it if it is unconscious or if it's subpersonal information processing, are you, and you can't identify the premises and stuff going on, would that count as being like rationally justified? Because it's, I mean, maybe this has to do with externalism and internalism, but it's still, even for the externals, it seems like, Oh, I guess the, I guess the externalist would say well, it depends on the case, depends on if you're in the good case or bad case. But like, yeah. why why trust those processes if you have no access to what's going on? Yeah, you know? I mean, well, this depends on your theory of the justification of perceptual beliefs. But if you have a good theory of um, perceptual knowledge, it should cover things like seeing a cat on the mat and like um, me recognizing a particular person's voice whom I know. Yeah. Like, you know, pick up the phone, you don't see the person, but you recognize their voice. Okay. And they don't have to say who they are. So, like, you know, a good theory of perception should 
count that as knowledge. And if it does, then it's probably going to count this thing where I see that you're angry as knowledge. Okay. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. Well, okay. So, um, again, this doesn't have to do with it, but I'm just curious cause you do know epistemology pretty well. Um, when it comes to uh, like unconscious inferences and subpersonal information processing, is there like a naive, naive realist approach to perception where it's like, no, this isn't going on. I'm just directly uh, acquainted with the cat on the mat and I don't, there is no uh, processes, processes going on. Or does that seem like way too naive? Well, um, that sounds too naive. So, okay. <laughs> I mean, yeah. like, I think the direct realist view that some people like me hold would say, yeah, you count as being directly aware of the cat on the mat and maybe even directly aware of the fact that there's a cat on the mat. Okay. But um, that doesn't mean that there's not processing going on in your brain because we know there is. <laughs> like, yeah. You know, like, I don't know, there are these cognitive science people who are studying it. <laughs> like, I assume that they know. <laughs> yeah. They're not just making stuff up. Uh, but, but is, um, <clears throat> I guess, uh, is it mediated uh, through like concepts and stuff that have to be processed in order for you to see the, the cat on the mat? Um, maybe. Okay. I mean, so yeah, there, I mean, it looks like there are some experiences that you can't have unless you have a certain concept. So yeah, you know, the, the famous duck rabbit picture where, yeah, yeah. yeah, it looks like a duck, but it also kind of looks like a rabbit. Okay. If you don't have the concept of a duck, like you've never encountered ducks before, then you can't see the duck aspect and you yeah. don't know what people are talking about. Like if somebody says, Hey, you know, what's this? You go picture of a rabbit and they like, well, you could see it as another animal. Try you will not be able to see it as the other animal so anyway um and it's it's not a matter of belief right when you switch between seeing the two aspects of the picture you're not changing your beliefs it's like yeah you know that nothing has changed about the picture you don't think that it changed yeah unless you go in for some woo, -woo stuff about uh I don't know, quantum physics and you're creating a collapse of the wave function or something, but maybe you can just <laughs> yeah. put those to one side. Yeah. Yeah. But, um, yeah. yeah. But so, I mean, concepts are involved in some way. Okay. Um, yeah. But you're this not is, like consciously reasoning or anything. Yeah. Okay. And this was totally peripheral and it was just a random question, but it doesn't have to do with your argument here. You, you go in with, uh, I mean, you give names to these people, which is fun. Reza, the reasoner, and Percy, the perceiver. And yeah. Reza um, has unconscious inference going on, and Percy has subpersonal information processing going on. And then yeah. you um, you make this parody. I I I'm a little unclear on the distinction between the two. So I'm I'm sure a lot of my audience is too. Like, what would be the difference between unconscious inferences and making them, and yeah. subpersonal information processing? Yeah. I mean, yeah. So you know, just like for like why this matters to the problem of other minds, you know, like, yeah, yeah. well, it's supposed to have something to do with how the person is justified. All right. So if you reasoned to the conclusion that another person has a certain mental state, then it looks like, oh, you've got to have justification for the premises and whatever. And like the reasoning yeah. form has to be cogent or something. Um, and then the people who are claiming that your knowledge is perceptual, they want to avoid having to, you know, you having to find justification for the premises and whatever. Yeah. So they want to say, okay, so you didn't reason to it, not even unconsciously. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, but something happened. So, well, yes, but it was just the subpersonal information processing, yeah. right? Like happens in your brain all the time, even when you see normal things. Right. So, yeah. okay. 
So like that's supposed to help epistemologically, right? Okay, well, I don't know. What would the difference be between me making an unconscious inference and me going through some, uh, like my brain doing information processing that doesn't even count as inference? Okay, well, so one difference would be, um, like what's my attitude towards the information that is used to reach the conclusion, mm. right? Which would be called the premises if it's an inference. Yeah. Um, so if it's an inference, then if it's an unconscious inference, then um, if you ask me about the premises, they should be things that I would believe. Oh, right? yeah, that makes sense. So even if you don't have direct access to them, I could prompt you by saying, well, is this the first premise that you were? And you go, oh, yeah, that seems like the first one. Does that? Yeah, I mean, yeah, I, mean I may not even, well, whether or not I identified that that was actually what I was oh, using, yeah. I sure. should accept it as true. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Like, yeah. you know, you like you give the information, go, is that the case? I should go, yeah, that's the case, okay. obviously. Right? Yeah. Um, and also, if you if you asked, okay, so this information, you know, these premises, do they support C, <laughs> you know, this conclusion? And it should seem like they do. Yeah. <laughs> and like um, for it to be for it to be an un unconscious inference, right? So. Like, I don't have to have thought it at the time, but it should be a thing that I would regard as an acceptable inference. Yeah. Um, but this isn't the case in, you know, like in many cases, you know, where your brain is doing processing, right? So, mm -hmm. like, uh, if somebody gave me the voice print description, like the description of your voice print, <laughs> like yeah. whatever it is, and then said, so, is that what Parker's voice sounds like? I would go, I don't know, <laughs> right? Yeah, that's and so also, good. And, you know, hey, if a voice has these these properties, does that cogently support that it's Parker? I, would go, mm. I don't know. <laughs> That's almost like a another Mary's room type argument, right? You could have like all the you could have the printout of my whole you could have all the physical facts about my voice. But you wouldn't not know because it's not. Know different. That it was. Yeah. 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 I mean, one thing is, I I guess like it's a description, but you, you sort of like can't put together what it sounds like. Yeah. But there's a like, I mean, I have in mind you're imagining the description does describe phenomenal properties, but it would be like, it would be this complicated description and you probably haven't reflected on. Yeah. Like, so, you know, it would be hard to say whether that's actually the properties that you experience when you hear this person. Oh, yeah. Good call. Yeah. Okay. So, um, getting back to the problem. So, so why, um, why is Reza and Percy, like, how does that, uh, yeah, argue yeah, against, yeah, so, tell against the perceptual theory? Yeah, so you just, you imagine two people and one of them by stipulation is unconsciously reasoning to a conclusion about other minds, you know, like some, um, Reza seen, sees somebody who's angry. Is Reza a male or a female name? I, I forgot. I knew a Reza who was a, a dude when I was young. All right, all right yeah. so Reza, all right, so he... <laughs> Yeah. Uh, sees a person's expression and he unconsciously reasons to the conclusion that the person's angry. And then Percy sees a, the same expression and doesn't unconsciously reason, but his brain does subpersonal information processing and gives him the same conclusion. The person is angry. Yeah. Okay. And then, so there's a question of whether Percy has an epistemological advantage, right? Mm -hmm. Which is what these perceptual theorists about other minds are trying to say, right? Yeah. Okay. Also, what is the, um, What's the descriptive difference between Reza and Percy? Um, it's something like, well, if you ask Percy, if you give both of them this description of the face, like, okay, so these muscles were contracted, like the 
um, mouth was slightly downturned and they were like the eyebrows were slightly put together or something like that, even that complicated <laughs> description. If you asked Reza, he would say, yes, that was what the face looked like. And you asked him, and does that support that the person's angry? Reza would go, yes, it does. Okay. And then Percy would go, I don't know if that's uh. what the face looked like. And I don't know if that supports that they're angry. Okay, now, does that mean that Percy has an epistemologically better position? Hmm. <laughs> so it's like, okay, so <laughs> Percy, that is, in fact, the information from which he um, came to the belief, his brain right. came to the belief, but hmm. he doesn't know whether that actually supports the belief. Does that put right. him in a better position? Doesn't look like it, yeah. <laughs> <It's> like, no. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so so and that that would be the perceptual theory. Percy is the perceiver, and so it looks like subpersonal information processing doesn't get us to a better position to say to justify our belief in other minds. Um, yeah. I wonder. So <clears throat> maybe maybe I have in mind the more skeptical worry um, because of your former epistemology professor Barry Stroud, but. <clears throat> I'm thinking about like Hillary Putnam's uh, super actors and super Spartans in his paper brains and behavior. And he says like, well, we can, we can totally, um, we can imagine that there's these super actors who give off the wrong, um, the wrong facial expressions. You know, there's nothing going on. They're acting and they're doing it so well that maybe they can even control their, uh, you know, neurophysiology. So even if you had brain scans going or super Spartans who are so tough that they don't have, like they're, they're not going to perspire even when someone's like drilling in their foot or something like that, uh, they, <laughs> something horrible. Um, what it is, does that come into play or did, or would, would both Reza and Percy, both the unconscious inference and subpersonal, is there just room for them being mistaken? And they say, Hey, look, you know, that, that doesn't really have to do with this. Yeah. I mean, they would both be subject to the same possibility of error. Right. So, yeah. Um, yeah. you know, then, I mean, I guess like Reza would be in a better position to recognize the possibilities of error because, uh, oh, yeah, yeah. Um, so that's just a better theory in general. Like Reza's unconscious inferences seem like it's just a more justified take if you're doing things that way, right? Well, is he more likely to have justified beliefs? I don't know. Um, oh, yeah. Um, I mean, because like I take it that the, the difference is turn on these things like, well, yeah, would you accept, like if somebody gave you the correct description of what the person's face looks like or whatever, would you accept it as being true? So um, like, does that theory have an advantage? Well, it depends whether you think it's plausible that a person would. Uh, yeah. And I, I think, no, there's just a lot of stuff where you just don't know how you recognize something. Hmm. Um, now, I mean, there are some cases where you do know, like, <laughs> okay, so like, you know, I offered somebody um, $1,000 for their car and they said no. And I, well, why not? And they're like, well, because I think it's worth like 5000 asshole. <laughs> and then, okay. And then I think I know why I believe that. Yeah. I think I know why the person rejected my offer. Yeah. <laughs> like, and I don't think that I had to unconsciously infer. I think I consciously infer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, that's good. So we have, um, we're just knocking these down. We got the argument from analogy. It looks like it's you know, insufficient because it's induction from a single case. Perceptual theory looks like it's not a better explanation than like unconscious inference. There's this parody and there's supposed to be doing more work and it looks like it's, it's not able to do that. 
And then you have, uh, I think your preferred method is, is IBE inference to the best explanation, right? Yeah. 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 I mean, you know, basically, well, our beliefs about other people's minds explain their behavior. Um, and it, it explains very complex and ordered behavior that would be extremely difficult to explain without using mental concepts. Yeah. Right. So, you know, you think about something like, um, okay, so I hold a class, you know, on Monday and Wednesday throughout the semester and uh, a bunch of students show up every time and like, okay, so now, you know, imagine somebody who doesn't have any mental concepts explaining what's going on. So there are these particular bits of matter that keep winding up here, but it's like, and there's like a cycle of seven rotations of the earth where, you know, like they, they show up here. And then after two rotations of the earth, they show up again. And then after another five rotations, they show up again. Yeah. And it's in this particular location. Right. And you're like, what's making all these blobs show up here? <laughs> like, just like it's it, it's incredibly difficult to explain that and you're like okay well maybe there's just like some unknown physical mechanism that happens to have that effect like well, i don't know that's like a super complicated yeah. um mechanism and like it's super unlikely and you're like okay so well for almost any mechanism that would have that result it would be like easily disrupted yeah okay so like what is enabling the blobs to come back after two rotations of the sun. Like, well, uh, it's it's gotta be two rotations of the earth. It's gotta be that they're detecting the cycles of light and dark. Hmm. Okay, so like, you know, if we block the, um, <laughs> the sun so that they can't see the sun, they're not gonna come back, right? Yeah. It's like, no, not true, right? Yeah. And, you know, okay, and you know, just like, and the fact that there's like 30 of them that are showing up. Right. And then like, you know, one time I send out an email that says, okay, class is canceled. And like, and then none of them show up. Yeah. Or like maybe one of them shows up because <laughs> you didn't get the email. But exactly. how do you explain what's going on without using mental concepts? Right. Like yeah. Without saying that they believe that the class was canceled or something. Mm -hmm. like you just, you know, you're just not going to be able to explain the pattern of when they go and when they don't go and all this stuff. Right? Yeah. So, so again, I like that you keep using all these names. You have uh, Alan the alien, and he comes to Earth and does what you were just uh, describing. I wonder, in the case of Alan, though, uh, Alan isn't the same kind as the humans he's observing. And so I wonder if that would put him in a different, like, epistemological situation, where it's like, I maybe have a... I'm more justified, or it's more reasonable for me to make claims about or for you to make claims about your students because you take them to be of the same kind as you than it would be for Alan, who yeah. is just observing. What do you make of that? Do you think that's right? Well, so like if there was an intelligent alien species, um, they would probably find it harder to understand our behavior than we do. Yeah. Um, because they would probably have different mental states. Sure. So there might be some emotions that they don't have, or there might be some emotions that they have that we don't. And yeah. then like when we're acting on one of those emotions, they might not understand what we were doing mm -hmm. because they don't know what it feels like. Um, no, I mean, would they have less justification for believing that we're conscious in general? Well, probably not, right? Mm. Not noticeably less. Well, I'm thinking about like, think about like ants. Uh, and you look at that and you, you might be able to say, well, um, we, we, we might, maybe we should ascribe mental states to ants because doing so enables us to explain and predict their behavior you know why, why are they building these complex structures well it's because they 
have desires to, or they want to please the queen or something. Uh, yeah. And then people come out, you know, the biologists come around and like, no, they're automaton or something. Um, so I, I think that, yeah, if I were an ant, I think it'd be more justified for me to be like, of course, Steve, the other ant has a mental state like mine. We're of the same kind, but he might be in a better position as an ant than I am, uh, <laughs> you know, <laughs> uh, making all the proper adjustments there. Uh, I see. So, well, if you were an ant, I guess you would know whether you were conscious. Right. And then like you hear some biologists saying ants are not conscious. Right. Then you would just know that he's wrong. Totally. <laughs> and right. Then, and I it's guess, the same, and, same thing with us where we have, you know, uh, illusionists or someone being like, yeah, consciousness is illusion. It's like, well, you're, you're wrong because I'm, <laughs> you know, and, and so, but, but the alien observing, uh, the illusionist philosophy talk might be like, hmm, I, 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 it looks like they are conscious to me, but this dude's saying that they're not, and I'm not of the same kind as them. So maybe I'm not as in as good of a position as the audience is. Yeah. So I guess, um, yeah, I mean, I guess the question is sort of about whether argument from analogy plays some role. Yeah. Right? And I'm not against it playing any role at all. I'm just oh, against right. it yeah. being sufficient by itself. So yeah, you mentioned that. Yeah. Like, so so I'm just wondering, does does it? Um, okay. So let's say that there's a there's a inference of the best explanation, and then um, for the alien, Alan, the alien has as an IBE for us being conscious, but I have IBE plus analogy because I am a same kind as you. Am I more justified than Alan? You think? Oh yeah, so I guess you're a little bit more justified, right? Okay, cool, but, but only a more bit evidence. Cause, yeah, because I think he's got like very high, very high justification. Yeah. Just you know, like human behavior is so complex. Now, if it comes to ants, like I think there could be like a real uncertainty about whether they have any mental states. Right, like their behavior is it's simple enough that it could be a mechanism, and mm. I mean anything could just be a mechanism, but it's like <laughs> it's less improbable. Yeah. Yeah, well, I, I think about the disanalogy. Um, I think about like Sophia the robot, and uh, they, you know, uh, I forgot who did it now. It's not Hanson. It might be Hanson. Um, they is it Hanson Robotics? I'm not sure. I think it might be. Uh, ben Gersel is coming on to talk about it, so he'll correct the the thing, the record. But you know, Sophia has all these complex uh, facial emotions and stuff, and they mimic they mimic the human and so if you're looking at it, it's like oh yeah it looks like she's upset but i guess we just we say that she's not because we have uh other like theoretical things that are coming into play we're like no no she's a robot and i don't think robots can be conscious or something is yeah i mean i can explain why it's making those expressions Oh yeah, and my right. explanation doesn't involve attributing mental states to the robot. Yeah, my explanation involves attributing mental states to the makers of the robot, and <laughs> particularly the makers of the robot deliberately, <laughs> yeah, tried to make it make expressions that look like a person who has that mental state. Yeah, because they identify the expressions that a person makes when they have an emotion, and then they intentionally create a mechanism that would make those. And so, like that's that's an explanation that doesn't require attributing mental states to the robot. Yeah. No, that's so good. Okay, yeah. So that's a way to to block the inference of the best explanation using it for a uh, supposedly conscious machine. No, that's yeah. good. Okay. Um, how would we? 
how would we ever know about the ants? Do, do you think that there's like a test that we could do? Well, um, not that I know of. I'm like, yeah. if there was just a behavioral test that you could do, somebody would have done it because, you know, they're clever people. Sure. <laughs> um, but uh, basically, we need a better theory of consciousness. Yeah. That is like, we need a theory that explains what causes consciousness in the first place. Mm. And then we could see whether ants have it, right? Yeah. So it could be like, oh, you know, there's like the integrated information theory of consciousness, right? So, okay. So if we became convinced that that was true, then we could sort of like um, calculate the integrated information score of the ant, right? Yeah. Although, actually, I guess on this theory, they are conscious because like just anything is a little bit conscious or something. Yeah. Information goes deep. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> yeah. Yeah. That's fascinating. Or yeah, if you have like global workspace or something and you're like, well, it doesn't look like there's any global workspace going on uh, in the ant. So, so yeah, it would just be a theoretical way. Uh, unless, what do you think about like, what about like mental sharing and uh, like Neuralink or anything? Do you, I mean, you're a substance dualist, so I think that you'd probably be like, no. But do you think that it's like possible metaphysically to have to go in for like mental sharing where I could experience your maybe oh. even just maybe just even experience uh, your your qualia as Parker? You know, maybe I'm not experiencing yeah. it as Mike humor, but yeah, still. I mean, you can't experience my token mental states, but you could experience a qualitative duplicate mm. of my mental states. Yeah. You know, like, well, no, you just like have to get your brain into the same configuration. Mm -hmm. right? And because we're both humans, it's plausible that you could. Um, yeah. But so that wouldn't be something we could do with an ant because we have radically different, like, yeah. Wet yeah, stuff. I mean, my knowledge of ant brains is limited, but <laughs> I know that they're a lot smaller. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, right. So, like, it's probably not possible to instantiate most of the mental states that we have in yeah. in something that small. Yeah, that's good. Well, do you think that there are theories of mind that exacerbate the problem of other minds um, more than yes. others? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, there are theories that make it insoluble, right? And or basically entail that we don't have knowledge of other minds yeah. but this is they this is commonly ignored the people who have these theories commonly don't notice this but you know this is like an example of how philosophers have crazy theories that you know they couldn't really believe but mm. anyway but they they sort of believe it like they believe it at an explicit conscious verbal level but unconsciously they believe the opposite anyway so yeah, yeah say you're an epiphenomenalist you know like so your view is mental states don't affect um, the physical world at all. Mm -hmm. So then on that view, if other people didn't have mental states, they would behave in exactly the same way. Like that's an explicit prediction of your theory. So like your theory implies that um, your belief doesn't track the truth. Yeah. You know, and like, and it doesn't explain anything, right? Your theory <laughs> implies that your beliefs about other minds don't explain anything about people's behavior, which is what you can actually observe. So yeah. The theory seems to imply that your own views are unjustified, I would say. Yeah, yeah. Um, Jim Slagle has written a whole book called The Epistemological Skyhook, where he, he goes in on like self-defeat type arguments. And uh, this is a big one. that It looks like the epiphenomenalists who poo-poo like folk psychology, people who are like, yeah, I have mental states. It looks like they have to 
in a sense, presuppose folk psychology in order to make their arguments against folk psychology. And that is a reason to reject a view that rejects uh, folk psychology. Um, which <laughs> I'm is not really sure this is what you mean, but I guess like, you know, when you're forming your beliefs about the brain or whatever, well, uh, you're taking them mostly on testimony, right? Mm. You have to use a lot of testimony. So that means you have to use your beliefs about other people's minds. Yeah. You have to believe that the person who said something about the brain said it because they believed it. Right. They had good reasons or something like that. So. Right. And then, and then even, even going further, like you have your beliefs and you're, you're saying that you're coming to these beliefs for reasons and for other beliefs. Right. So other people's beliefs, maybe even your own, but then you think that they're not like they're, they're not, they don't play a causal role in you forming beliefs, but, but you just said they did, you know? So, um, <laughs> Yeah. So, so epiphenomenalism. Yeah. That's so fascinating. Cause then it's like, well, everyone else could be a philosophical zombie because, um, you think that philosophical zombies are, are possible because, uh, like the mental states, it's just, it's just like, uh, epi it's just up there. It, it doesn't do any causal. So it would act exactly the same way without any mentality. So yeah, I wonder like why even think that anyone else does have mentality then? you yeah, you know yeah, you you know you do i guess but kind yeah, of. i mean so like i mean ba basically it's like initially um you would explain people's behavior by appealing to their mental states yeah. but you know then you become an epiphenomenalist and like allegedly you've got great evidence that there is an alternative explanation now you don't actually know the alternative explanation i.e you don't know the precise brain state that the person is in right. such that you could predict their behavior from the brain state but your theory says that there is an, a complete physical explanation that doesn't appeal to their mental states. Right. And I think that, that alone, that's a defeater for, yeah. for your beliefs about the mental states. So yeah. now you have to give up the beliefs about the mental states. Right? That's right. That's so good. I love that. Um, <clears throat> do you, do you think that there are psychophysical laws that, I mean, um, maybe you don't have, I don't, I don't think you have to believe that there are psychophysical laws like Donald Davidson, yeah. I don't think believe there was maybe Richard Swinburne, but yeah. uh, what do you think? Yeah. Do you think that there are psychophysical laws that allow our, our mind and brain to interact with each other? Oh, I mean, I guess, right. I mean, there's psychophysical causation. Yeah. So I, I guess it's governed by laws. Okay. I mean, I, I don't know. I, I guess that's not like logically required, but right. as, as far as we know, other cases of causation are governed by laws. So I guess this is. Yeah. No, that's good. I'm setting something up later about the AI stuff. So I wanted to see if that was there. Um, what? So you you do go through like kind of a whole gambit of uh, the philosophy of mind. You, you, we talked about epiphenomenalism, but you also talk about uh, mind brain identity theory. Can you yeah. talk about um, it? So the, the the title of the paper is dualism and the problem of other minds. And it's yeah. I don't know if you're using the IBE to say, like, look, dualism best explains that we can infer to the best explanations. Is this an argument for dualism? Because you are kind of running ship on all the other views except for dualism. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, it's an argument for dualism, right? Like, so, you know, when you think about the best answer to the problem of other minds, you realize that it presupposes dualism or something like nice. that. Yeah, that's so, um, yeah, that, so the mind-brain identity theory. Okay, so you think that mental states just are brain states. Um, and then, well, that's kind of like epiphenomenalism, right? Now, um, officially, it's not epiphenomenalism because... Um, the mental states, so the mental states just are brain states and the brain states are causally efficacious. Therefore, the mental states are causally efficacious. Okay. Right. But on this theory, 
the the fact that you have mental states that doesn't add any explanatory power right so like if somebody considers the hypothesis where other people have the brain states that they have but these those just don't constitute mental states yeah that person should predict exactly the same behavior as the person who thinks the brain states do constitute mental states right okay and the idea the idea that other people's brain states constitute mental states you know like that's like, so, you know, the core of the mind-brain identity theory. Well, that idea doesn't explain anything, mm. right? You could say other people just have brain states explaining their behavior and they don't constitute mental states, right? In, in general, like when, so like other people's mental states are a theoretical posit from your point of view. Right. And to justify the theoretical posit, you have to show how it explains something that wouldn't be explained if you don't, if you don't adopt that theory. But you can't do that because your whole theory, the explanation is on the physical states. Yeah. So good. Yeah, I was trying to think of an analogy, but it's kind of it's kind of tricky sometimes. Um, <clears throat> I don't know if you painted like one side of a of a penny green on all the pennies and you're looking at the green ones and you're like, look at all these look at all these mental states. But you look underneath and they're all copper and that's really what's doing all the work. Um, <clears throat> it's not the it's not the color doing anything it's like the physical properties of the penny that are knocking into each other or something and, and finally knock over the last one so it, it the color is just kind of there but it doesn't it's who cares it could have been any color it doesn't really matter i don't know if that's a good analogy probably not yeah i'm a little confused yeah, <laughs> okay but you know like um okay take examples of real theoretical identities like water's h2o okay yeah there we go and now imagine somebody telling telling you why they're justified in believing that and they go like Okay, well, um, you know, my, my theory about water, like H2O explains some stuff. Oh, what does it explain? Well, like there's a water stain on my coffee table. Oh, how does H2O explain that? Well, you see, uh, I spilled some water there and water is H2O and water caused the water stain on the table. Therefore, H2O caused the water stain on the table. Mm. Therefore, my theory that there's H2O uh, helps explain my observation of this water stain on the table. No, right. <laughs> that is not how it goes. That is yeah. not how scientists conclude that water is H2O. Right. Right. The way they actually did it was there's an experiment where you can um, decompose water into gas. Hmm. And, and, you know, you can test it and it turns out to be hydrogen and oxygen gas. Yeah. Okay? And then there's another experiment where you can burn hydrogen in the presence of oxygen and it turns into water. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Right. That's how. Okay. So like, there's an observation that couldn't be explained if you have an alternative theory. Like if you think water is NaCl, you could say the same thing about the water stain on the coffee table, but you could not explain the experiment where, you know, the electrolysis experiment where you turn the water into hydrogen and oxygen. Right. right. So anyway, the thing about other people's mental states, like um, the physicalist needs to come up with some experiment where if other people's brain states constitute mental states, a different thing would happen than what happened if they don't constitute mental states or if they constitute different mental states from the ones you thought. Yeah. Like, and, but it's there, it's just like a key part of their view that that's not the case. <laughs> like it's part of their view that everything is just explained by the physical properties. If you just yeah. gave the correct physical description, that would explain everything. Yeah. Yeah. That's so great to, it's, it's, it's wild to see that in comparison to epiphenomenalism and see how close and see how they're, they're, struggling with the same kind of problem yeah yeah especially in light of the the problem of other minds so so we got identity theory and then and this kind of tracks uh 
actually i don't know when an epiphenomenalism came around i know like the the official story is like behaviorism then mind brain identity and then functionalism that's kind of how we're taking it in stride here too um but so functionalism you go over the like two main kinds uh there's like analytic fun functionalism which is really close to mind brain if not the same thing uh identity theory and then there's i, I call it machine functionalism because I've, I've read putnam and stuff and that's kind of where i live but um, I don't know, maybe you have a different name or maybe your, maybe your taxonomy is, uh, is different, but would you say those are two functionalisms? Oh, uh, I mean, I don't know. There's like, you know, it, it's either an analytic or a synthetic view, right? Oh yeah. A synthetic. Okay, so, I never hear that. Yeah. Um, so like, yeah, the analytic view is, well, you could just define mental state terms in terms of physical states. Mm -hmm. So, okay. If that's true. Like if just the meanings of mental state terms can be given in terms of functional states, then, uh, okay, then you solve the problem of other minds, right? Yeah. But like, I think this is too easy. <laughs> like, <laughs> like when you first hear about the problem of other minds, like very few people's response to it is, oh yeah, no, it's just like analytic that if people behave in a certain way in response to certain stimuli, then they have mental states. Yeah. Because that's just obviously not true. <laughs> So that's why we thought there was a problem in the first place. Right. <laughs> but yeah. Well, um, one thing you noted in the paper, which, which is true, which is really good. Like one of the, one of the motivations, key motivations for functionalism was multiple realizability where we want to say that there are mentality, there's mentality in other beings. And if there was a, if there was an alien that came down, but he was made of a different material, it wasn't carbon based life form, but like gaseous or something. And, uh, still was reasoning and stuff with us, we'd want to say that, yes, the, um, there's pain states that are multiply realized, that, that, that can be realized in this gaseous alien or something. Yeah. But it but it looks like on the analytic view, I don't know, can they still have multiple realizability? Oh, well, yeah, so... Um, yes, but I mean, so one of the points I make in the paper is, well, there might be like a further kind of multiple realizability of the functionalists didn't notice, which is that um, a mental state could have different functional profiles. Mm. Oh yeah, that's right. That's right. That was so good. And yeah. So, so the same state could play a different role in a rattlesnake, I think, than like a mouse versus yeah. a human. Yeah. So like, you know, like, you know, you describe some embarrassing experience and it causes <laughs> embarrassment for a human, but it doesn't embarrass the snake. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, but okay, so but no no form of functionalism can accept that. Like, mm -hmm. They don't. They have multiple realizability for like physical states. Different um, physiological states could realize the same functional state, but they don't have different functional states could have the same mental state. Um, yeah. Okay, but you know, but um, the other problem for like the analytic functionalist is well, actually, some of the facts about the functional properties of a mental state are empirical. Mm -hmm. Okay, so like, you know, I gave this example that um, um, I discovered at some point in my life that pain could be enjoyable. Hmm. So on that, so I used to dislike spicy food, but at some point I came to like it. Yeah. And well, okay, before I came to like it, I knew that some people liked it. So anyway, I'm so glad that you used food and not something else. That's yeah. That's so um, it's a weird discovery pain can be enjoyable, <laughs> but <laughs> yeah. true. Okay. But th so that's an empirical discovery. It's not like conceptual. You don't just think about the meaning of pain and then see that it could be enjoyable. If you just think about pain, you would think that it wasn't, it couldn't be enjoyable. <laughs> and then, yeah. 
Does okay, wait. So maybe maybe the um maybe there's something maybe maybe there's like a bifurcation between yeah, like analytic and a priori or something. So it's like maybe I just maybe I, a posteriori I came to understand that pain can be uh pleasurable in some senses and that it that helped my analytic concept of pain. Right. So maybe I just didn't have the actual concept. If the concept included, uh, he's doing an incredulous stare for the listeners. Uh, I'm trying to, I'm trying to, I'm trying to help them out here. Like, what, what do you make of that? Just because I say, um, maybe I just didn't understand pain. If I didn't understand that pain can also in, incorporate some pleasure in there. Well, I mean, it seems like you could understand it just by feeling some pain, right? Yeah. First, first time you felt pain, you knew what it was. Uh, all right, you know, somebody could say, hey, you want to know what pain is? And then they poke you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, well, okay, wait, I mean, actually. You know, what, like, what, I mean, yeah. th that's that's not more plausible than saying the same thing about anything else that's empirical. And then like, you know, just like if you can claim that that's analytic, then you could claim anything's analytic. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. It might erode the whole concept, uh, which we might even have analytically. Uh, what What is a pain? what do you think a pain is well so i don't have a verbal definition of it i okay. can give ostensive definitions but you have to be present for me to give them. <laughs> yeah thanks um <laughs> so yeah i mean like well yeah it's this kind of thing that is in common between and i could list some things like you know, when you touch a hot stove and then like yeah. when you get poked and whatever and you have a headache and there's something in common between all those is it is is does it incorporate as a like a duelist does it incorporate like the ouch of it like the the qual the quality yeah yeah the pain is a type of quality right yeah um right. so so you can't have an unconscious pain you think right uh i don't know neither do i that's, <laughs> why, I, that's why i was hoping you could help me with that well like you know my my initial reaction is no so I'm not sure what that means, but then, you know, just think about like, you can think of cases that are sort of approaching an unconscious pain, right? <laughs> like, mm -hmm. okay. So, you know, you know, all the, these sorts of things where like, um, you know, you're sitting in a room and you're talking about philosophy with somebody for a while. And then at some point, you know, you notice that there's this buzzing coming from the lights in the ceiling. Yeah. And at the time that you notice that you also realize that it's been there for the entire time that you've been there. Mm -hmm. <laughs> okay. So, it was sort of like you were unconsciously hearing that. Yeah. Um, and yeah. so it's sort of like there's an unconscious sensation right? or it's unconscious quality, right? Cause yeah. there's something that it's like to hear it, but you're not paying attention to it. Yeah. That's like the, like access consciousness and, and phenomenal consciousness. I, I don't, I don't know why I feel this way, but I just, it seems to me like that wouldn't, you wouldn't be having that sensation then like if you weren't aware of it i don't know that's weird yeah 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 there's there's like it seems like it's somehow in your mind yeah but it's it's out of the focus of attention yeah all the global workspace people are freaking out right now like yeah that's exactly what our theory predicts and, um you know, and there could be degrees to which it's in your attention and out of your attention, right? Like, yeah, it wasn't completely out of your mind, right? It wasn't completely yeah. out of attention because, like, you sort of feel relief when it goes away or something like that. And, like, and there would be no reason to try to stop the annoying noise 
if it was totally out of your attention, right? Right, right. And it's sort of like, well, your whole mood improves if you like change all of the things that are sort of like you're not noticing. All yeah. of the unpleasant things that you're not noticing, if you change all of them, then your mood improves. That's pretty good. Yeah, that's pretty good. So maybe, and, and I could ask like, why did your mood improve? And I have all this third person, you know, information about I turned off the buzzing noise and stuff. And you're like, oh, I'm not sure. He's like, well, I know why. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, okay, so so uh, I like I like your criticisms of, of functional. It's really good. So you 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 also throw in zombies against them as well. I think. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, no, so it looks like there could be. It's just it's logically possible, right? So mm -hmm. highly unlikely, but logically possible that there could be zombies. So like it could have the same um, functional characteristics as a person, but it could not have mental states. Yeah. Like, and you know, like it did, I don't know. And the, I, I guess that the common functionalist response is no, that's logically impossible. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but yeah. There's no reason to think that other than that you deduce from your theory that it's gotta be logically impossible. Yeah. As, as far as I can tell, like insofar as I have any idea of what's logically possible, like that's a paradigm case of a thing that's logically possible. I don't know. Yeah. And, like, and if I'm not going to accept that that's logically possible, I don't know why I should think anything. Like I can't have any beliefs about modality because that's just has the same basis as the rest of my beliefs about modality. I love that move. I, I did that in a paper earlier this year. We are like, man, yeah. if you don't know this one, then we don't know any of our, our, our <laughs> modal intuitions. That's so much fun. Um, so, but but I, on substance dualism, um, you'd say like, no, it because because uh, it's an immaterial soul that does the experiencing that has the the qualia it is uh logically impossible w would you say that the, it um zombies are like metaphysically or logically impossible on substance dualism well uh no i mean it's so it's logically possible to have um like a purely physical mechanism that acts as acts the same way as a person oh yeah that's true right? it just doesn't have a mind you know so yeah so but it would be logically impossible to say that a mind is an immaterial substance and this thing has a mind being a fully physical thing because that's like directly contradictory right yeah nice yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah is it um you know maybe there's a distinction between logical and metaphysical possibility I, there, right? it's metaphysically impossible because of what minds are right, right. it's not a contradiction because I, I guess because the mind brain identity theory isn't a contradiction but but given the given like given the theory it's 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 lot it's metaphysically impossible for the substance to us but like given the theory that uh like the anti-identity theory that minds and brains are not the same things it's like hey minds and brains are, the, are not the same things and here's something that has a mind which is its physical brain and you're like well no those two are in direct you know what i mean like those are seem directly contradictory you can't have both of those be true in the same theory or system yeah yeah nice yeah yeah so yeah you could deduce from substance dualism <laughs> yeah yeah well i think i think that's i mean it's trivially true or whatever but it is like hey this is one of the theories that doesn't allow for zombies so if you think that zombies are impossible for some reason then come on over well <laughs> Well, I mean, you know, it allows for zombies that don't have a mind. So I, mean, I, I guess that's the problem. Yeah. Um, okay. Would all the other zombies not have a mind then? Like zombies oh, on uh, other views? I don't know. I mean, um, 
you know, they're supposed to be intentional zombies who have intentional states, but no qualia. Is that, I don't, I don't actually know if that's possible. I don't know either. That seems odd. Intentionality because... seems like a, well, I mean, that's one of the arguments you give for substance dualism is intentionality. Seeing yeah. Like there is an immaterial but, mind. Yeah. But so like, you know, um, I don't, I don't know about that because, well, it kind of seems to me like there is something that it's like to have a belief. Yeah. Yes. There's something that's like to believe the P. Well, maybe if it's just an unconscious belief, then there's nothing that it's like. I don't know. But could there be a being that's like all of its beliefs are unconscious? It never is. And it's not capable of having a conscious belief. Right. I'm not sure about that. I mean, so you might say that's think, what an AI is, right? Well, maybe you're I, redefining I mean, I think, beliefs. Yeah. I think it may not have beliefs at all. Right. So. Yeah. I think it may be required to have an unconscious belief that you'd be capable of having conscious beliefs. <laughs> and why? Yeah. I don't know. Because like, you know, maybe it has something to do with what would happen if you did consider the proposition. You know, like maybe you're unconsciously believing that P has something to do with what would happen if if you considered whether P consciously. Mm. Yeah. And that you would accept it or something like that. Yeah. So you're like habituated in a certain way or like you have a disposition to believe. Yeah, and so like you know the the inherently non-conscious being doesn't have any dispositional beliefs. Yeah, um, this is this is awesome. This is good stuff. Um, oh, so okay, I, I got a couple more for the functionalist. Sorry, guys, but that you guys are the ones who are the loudest. Um, yeah, <laughs> it, it doesn't uh, it doesn't actually describe the qualitative feel of a mental state. Maybe we already covered that, but. Um, mm. Yeah, I guess we did kind of cover that with the voice stuff, but maybe you could run through that again. Oh, yeah, just like, you know, somebody tells you, okay, so, you know, here's a functional profile. Like, there's an internal state, which is caused by these possible external states, and then it causes these other internal states, and it causes this behavior. So now you know what it feels like, right? <laughs> yeah. No? <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, and Thomas Nagel's famous paper what's it like to be a bat he wonders what it's like to be a bat because you know they have echolocation so you know you kind of wonder is is it kind of like seeing things in black and white hmm. or is it kind of like you know is it more like hearing but you somehow you're hearing the locations of things and you're hearing the shapes of things or whatever yeah. anyway. anyway we don't know what it's like but you know imagine somebody saying oh no 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 um we're just going to like figure out the functional properties of the brain state of the bat and then now you now you're gonna know what it's like. Yeah. No. <laughs> <laughs> it just doesn't seem like you could know. Yeah. No, that's that's such a good one. I, I really like that critique. Um <clears throat> and I, there's probably something else with bats that we can we can play off the uh uh mental states having different causal roles. So even if you could like pair these together, which I mean you, you have a whole list, but if you did pair them together, it's like even if you did know what it's like, you wouldn't know. Well, I guess you could observe its behavior, but yeah, it could have a different causal role in this bat than it does for us. And like the embarrassment one is so good. Like yeah. something that, that I may do, me screeching around, trying me trying to do echolocation in like a crowded gymnasium is going to be embarrassing <laughs> for me, but not for the bat or something. Yeah. 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 And, then, and you know, so it's like, well, you would have certain mental states, you know, and like the bat could have some the same mental states like you would have certain perceptions of the other people and whatever and you have beliefs about the other people and whatever yeah. and like if the bat has the same perceptions and i guess 
I don't know if it could have the same beliefs. But anyway, if it had the same beliefs about other people, it still yeah. wouldn't be embarrassed. Yeah. Um, I have to ask you this, and I don't think I ever have before, but I, I, I usually ask people, I'm kind of surprised I never asked you this, about um, about beliefs in animals. Like, do you, do you think bats have any beliefs? Do you think dogs have beliefs, justified beliefs, knowledge at all? Yeah. Well, I'm sure that dogs know things. Okay. You know, like... Uh, the dog is chasing a squirrel and then the squirrel runs up the tree and then the dog sits there at the bottom of the tree barking at the squirrel. Yeah. Why is he barking at the tree? Yeah. Well, because he knows that the squirrel is in the tree. Yeah. Um, okay. You can help me. You of all people can help me with this. So uh, I, I went crazy on Donald Davidson stuff and uh, a little bit too far. And he <laughs> he's overdosed. Yeah, big time. So he's like, hey, there's this aspect problem. Uh, and so, you know, since we have because his whole thing was uh, was language, you need language in order to have uh, you need language um, and concept acquisition coming from other linguistic speakers. And I I developed that and ran it for an argument for God, but he would not like that. Um, he's like, there's this aspect problem. You, you and I can attribute these beliefs uh, or this knowledge to a dog, but he doesn't really have the language sufficient to bring out to to. Uh, pick out the exact aspect like is he thinking about a squirrel or that brown blotchy thing that smelly thing that big chew toy that you know hairy goose and he's, yeah. and so so he's got this aspect problem and then he's got um a holism of the mental problem where he's like it looks like in order to attribute those beliefs to the dog we'd have to attribute other beliefs which seem less probable that he has like beliefs about trees and squirrels and claws and climbing and yeah. maybe the law of identity yeah. and stuff well, so yeah, what okay. are, we, are we? Yeah, help me out. Oh, well, so okay, so like the dog's belief is not going to be, it's not going to have exactly the content of your yeah. belief, and it won't be English, but yeah. but is it the same propositional content? Does it, does it have any propositional content? I guess, yeah. So, you know, the problem might be that the um, the content of the dog's belief can't be translated into English. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah because you know, like all of our words express human concepts yeah that doesn't mean it doesn't have any beliefs right like, so they yeah they're like doggy beliefs yeah right so i i mean i suppose the dog has a concept of it has some concept that is applying to that squirrel and maybe yeah. it's not our concept of a squirrel right because yeah. it doesn't have some of the information that we have about squirrels or whatever yeah like, i don't know like we know that yeah. squirrels are mammals so like, dog doesn't have that so <laughs> maybe it's analytic i don't know maybe it's analytic that squirrels are mammals yeah <laughs> so that the dog doesn't have our concept of a squirrel because yeah. it doesn't know that they're mammals so yeah um okay but anyway but it's got some concept that that thing is falling under i guess or, yeah. you know, if it doesn't have a concept, then at least it um, it has a representation of that object. Yeah. OK. Yeah. And if and if concepts just are representations or if they are like abilities, then it looks I mean, it looks like obviously the dog has a ability to pick out squirrels because he's yeah. chasing the squirrel instead of the ball or something. Yeah. It's got representational mental states. OK. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. All right. Does it have a propositional content? Um, yes. Is that, OK. So. You know, what's a proposition? It's just like a way that the world could be. So, yeah, there's you, a way for are, the world. Are you a realist about propositions? I guess, yeah. Do you think they're like abstract ent entities? Yes, yeah. Yeah, they're less. So, so, so do I. This is, this is so good. This is why you're a perfect person to help me. Like, yeah. it, it, what about like the Benesaraf problem? So it comes from mathematics where it's like we have a weird epistemology then if uh, yeah. either we have weird metaphysics or weird epistemology.
Okay, you've frozen. Sorry, I lost you there for a second. Oh, yeah. Sorry, um, you froze for a second, so I didn't hear that. Yeah. So um, I, I just solved the problem of universals. Oh. Um, yeah, you missed it. Uh, <laughs> so, so yeah, the Banesferaf problem is like, for, for human beings, how, how is it that we have we can come in contact with these causally effete, you know, uh, necessary truths or necessary uh, mathematical yeah. facts? And so then it, it seems like it's even worse for a dog, where it's like, how does it? How does a well, dog pick out a squirrel like the concept or the abstract object yeah. or the proposition? You know, yeah. it seems like well, the Nesraf problem for doggies. I mean, I don't know if the dog has any a priori knowledge. Mm. Um, so, like, you know, might just have knowledge about that particular object yeah. and where it is. And it might not have abstract knowledge like whatever all squirrels are alive or something. Right? <laughs> Well, I mean, I don't know. So, you know, something that's a priori, okay? Yeah. <laughs> might not have that because that's supposed to be knowledge of universals. Yeah. Um, anyway, like, oh, okay. How do we have knowledge about abstract objects? Like, I don't, I don't know. <laughs> um, okay. So like the original formulation of the problem is something like, oh, well, you don't have any causal interaction. Yeah. Right. So, um, well, you don't have to have causal interaction. Like this is appealing to an obsolete theory of knowledge, a causal theory of knowledge. It doesn't have to be a causal connection. You know, causal theory of knowledge doesn't account for inductive knowledge either. Mm. We're like, you know, the, the generalization, like that fact doesn't cause your belief because it was only caused by the particular cases. Um, or what about like, like self-knowledge? Like you have knowledge of yourself in a non-causal form maybe, right? Oh, uh, I was thinking that it was causal. Like, oh, okay, your your internal states cause your um, second order beliefs. So even when, so if you're reflecting on your own so, in, internal states, that's still causal. You think? Yeah. So, um, like, I believe that I'm in pain. Well, the pain caused my belief that I was in pain. What if you believe that you believe that you're in pain? Yeah, then my belief that I was in pain caused my belief that okay. I believe that I was in pain. Gotcha. I guess, right? Okay. I, I, I don't know. You're the guy, man. That's what I'm asking you. Yeah. yeah it sounds right. <laughs> okay. Um, oh, anyway. Yeah. Okay. Well, so, you know, you need some other theory about knowledge other than the causal theory. I don't know. Okay. Well, you've got justification. I've got, so, you know, you got to have a justified true belief with no defeaters. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. No genuine defeaters, right? There, you know, maybe there's some other stuff, right? Because <laughs> yeah. there are counterexamples to every theory of knowledge. Okay. But sure. anyway. There's no problem with your abstract beliefs being true. There's no problem with your believing them. <laughs> okay, what's your justification? Well, I, you know, I have a great theory of justification. <laughs> I call it phenomenal conservatism. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you're justified because certain propositions seem correct to you. Okay, and so then you just have to not have defeaters. <laughs> um, okay, yeah. So there's no fact out there that, when added to your beliefs, um, would result in your no longer being justified in believing the abstract proposition. Yeah. Okay, sounds good. Um, and and then yeah, and I mean it does. It's supposed to do causal work. That's what a lot of like the real realists go in, or not explanatory work. It's supposed to do like you know resemblance facts for certain things, or uh, you know, mathemat mathematicians are actually studying something, and sometimes they do that, and like, well, then there's got to be something out there. That one's kind of weak. But when yeah. we turn it when we turn it over to dogs, like, what do we do with that? Like. It seems, I guess, I don't know. It seems to the dog that the squirrel went up the tree, and and if there is a fact of the matter where the dog's sniffing up the wrong tree, then he's not. It's not doesn't count as knowledge because there's a defeater. Does that sound right? Yeah, you know, say say the squirrel jumped to another tree, and the dog is still at the first tree, right? Yeah, I've seen that okay, happen. So then then he doesn't know. Then his then he's wrong about something. 
Yeah. But, you know, being wrong means that there was some, there's some proposition. Yeah. Like, if there's um, something that's right or wrong, then there's a proposition. Right. By the way, like many, many people appear to confuse the, the adjective conceptual with propositional. <laughs> right. So, like, yeah. Well, it totally. doesn't have to have a concept, it just has to have a mental representation that can be correct or incorrect. Yeah. Um, hmm. Yeah. Okay. I, I think you're right. Um, but it seems like they're like really tied together. Like, I guess, depending on the theory. So if you have a, if you think thoughts have propositional content and they're like composed of concepts, then they're like, they're pretty, there's still a distinction, but it's like, you can't have a thought without concepts yeah. and propositional and propositions, I guess. Yeah. I mean, you know, d depending on what, I don't know, depending on what thought means, that might be true. Um, oh, yeah, sure. But, but you know, like the, the dog will have some mental state. Like I would be tempted to call it a thought. I don't know if it has concepts. I'm not, I'm not even really sure what concepts are. Okay. But anyway, yeah. you know, like maybe the dog will not have a concept. So, okay. So if you, if you have um, one of these thoughts that's composed of concepts mm -hmm. where like you applied a predicate type concept to a subject type yeah. concept, yeah. then you have propositional content. Uh -huh. Okay, but um, you can have propositional content without having the thought with the concepts. All right, so like, well, you could just have a perception, and your perception can be correct or incorrect. You can yeah. misperceive or hallucinate. Oh, yeah, okay, that's a good point. That's good. That's good. Um, oh, shoot. Okay, so if you're misperceiving, your perceptions have propositional content? Like... Is it yeah. perception? Is it a it's, perception? Is a mental act? Is it like a mental token? Is it does it exist like in your mind? Oh, so there's um, there's an experience in your mind known as a perceptual experience. Yeah, right. perceiving an object requires having a perceptual experience, which is caused in the appropriate non-deviant way. Yeah, by an object that roughly satisfies the content of the experience. So the content the content of the perception is is an external world object, right? Um, well, I take contents, contents to be abstract objects. Yeah. Okay. So that would be the proposition. That satisfies it. Yeah. That's pretty cool. And then, so it, the matching is what, what makes it true or false. Yeah. Um, but so, you know, like some people disagree with this, whatever. Yeah. Some people say perceptual experiences don't have propositional content. Yeah. Okay. But that, like, as far as I understand it, like if a perception can be correct or incorrect, then it has propositional content. Okay. Because, you know, propositions are just ways the world might be. They're not necessarily tied to concepts. There could be ways that the world could be that we don't have concepts for. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. I like it. Um, <clears throat> so going to, so, so we're diving, double, double dipping down on dogs here. Um, dogs, yeah. it, wait, did you say the dogs have beliefs? They have knowledge, right? Yeah. I mean, like I don't, they they have something belief like and something knowledge like, right? Do, yeah. Do those have? I mean, those have to have intentionality then, right? Like if the dog yeah. has uh, something about. So uh, you gave this argument for souls from intentionality. Does that mean that dogs have souls? Uh, yes. Yeah. Nice. All right. <laughs> Anything with a mind. Okay. Right? Like a mind is a soul. So. It's... Yeah, a mind is okay. And like Some as far the... as like as far as I can. Um, conceive you know you have to have a soul to have any yeah. mental states at all like there can't be a mental state without um, a subject that experiences yeah. it 
So, yeah, I'm with you. I, I, I totally agree. Some of the, some of my Catholic philosopher friends are going to be like, a mind is not a soul. A soul is composed of all these inseparable parts and a mind is one of them. It's like, yeah, okay guys. But for this conversation, we're talking about immaterial things. And, um, I don't know. Have you, have you considered that like there's different, different parts to a soul and the mind, maybe one, or you have like an intellect as well, or is that like medieval mm. nonsense? <laughs> I know what it, it sounds sounds nonsensical. Um, I mean, they might just be using the word soul in a different sense, right? Sure. Yeah, yeah. Because there's this, you know, Aristotelian notion of a soul where there's like plants have a vegetative soul. Yeah. Okay. I don't know. <laughs> That's not what I'm talking about. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, I've also uh, I've been getting into some consciousness stuff, science of consciousness stuff, and uh, on the science side, people go in for some odd stuff. Like they will go really externalist and be like, Hey, a plant has a belief about the sun. And so it turns that way. And I don't know what to do with that kind of stuff, man. That just seems so bonkers. Uh, like that a, a tree could have knowledge. Like you, you have to have yeah. a, a, on your view, like you have to have a soul to have knowledge. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. You have to have a soul to have a belief. You have to yeah. have a belief to have knowledge. So, yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. Why should we not think that plants have beliefs? Um, you know, this is, uh, is connected to the problem of other minds, right? Like, yeah. how do we know that plants are not just mindless automata? <laughs> I mean, yeah. The answer is they are. <laughs> um, well, yeah, I guess I would say, okay, the hypothesis that plants believe things doesn't help us to explain anything that, you know, that we can't explain otherwise. So, yeah. Um, so like, I believe there's an explanation for phototropism, <laughs> which is you know when the plant turns towards the sun yeah and i believe that explanation is chemical and physical and uh you don't need beliefs <laughs> to explain why that's happening yeah if the if the plant said hey how's it going today uh I, it's a nice day for sun i'm gonna turn this way then you'd have some kind of phenomenal facts to explain and that's why there's this disanalogy between yeah. humans and and the problem of other minds and plants right yeah yeah. And, okay. And by the way, like, you know, even if you like the argument from analogy, it's like, well, we have brains and when we have beliefs, they are realized by our brain states. The plant doesn't have a brain. So like, I didn't, I didn't even know what the theory is about how it has beliefs. Yeah. There's this, there's this vegan, uh, I know you're a vegan actually, so I'm safe. Um, you're a vegan, right? Is that right? Yeah. Okay. Mostly. So we're safe. There's this vegans have been commenting on my stuff and they might, I'm, I'm just trying to preempt that they're going to say like, well, they do have a brain. You're just being, you know, uh, human centric or something. Well, uh, <laughs> I, mean, I, I would think that the, cause you know, vegans are for eating plants. I would think that they would be um, yeah. making the distinction between saying plants. no, that they don't. <laughs> so otherwise they can't eat anything. Um, Unless they do it in a humane way and doesn't cause pain or something. Or, yeah, maybe, maybe plants have, maybe their plants are intentional zombies, right? Maybe they have beliefs, but they don't have qualia. Oh, so uh, yeah, sure. That's good yeah, yeah, that's great. Um, so I, I want to go to AI eventually. I'm probably going to title this something AI to get people to click. So they're probably going to be upset that it took us this long. But we that's talked about true. some AI in there already. Um, yeah. here, here's one thing that um, a lot of, AI engineers or uh, AI theorists, probably the engineers probably don't talk about this, but the theorists will say they'll, they'll go with the problem of other minds and say, Hey, look, um, someone says, uh, how, how would we know if this machine's conscious or not? And they go, look, you can't even prove that I'm conscious. Like there's this problem of other minds. Uh, so if I can't prove demonstrably or, uh, you know, 
depending they're probably not getting into the epistemology of, of fallibilism or infallibilism but they're saying like if i can't prove that you have a mind why should i have to prove that this robot has a mind if it if it behaves as if it has a mind you know why can't i do this and so I, i'm gonna you're gonna say because i can explain it with other non-mental uh, things like the design plan or something of of the engineer is that right yeah i mean yeah so like a favorite argument for computer consciousness is something like, well, like the only evidence that I have that other people are conscious is that they behave as if they're conscious. Mm -hmm. And so if a computer behaves as if it's conscious, I have the same reason for thinking that it has mental states. And so, I'm, yeah, okay. So I should attribute mental states, uh, provided that it can pass the Turing test or something like that. Yeah, right. Right. So my response is, okay, so there is an initial reason. So if they, like you run into a robot and it behaves like a person, behaves as if it had consciousness. There's some initial reason to ascribe mental states to it. Uh, unfortunately, though, there is a defeater for this, you know, in most cases, which is that you know that the reason why it behaves that way is that somebody went through a very complicated, long, painstaking process to deliberately make it act as if it had mental states. Right. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, right. So it's sort of like, um, you know, if you see an image that looks exactly like a picture of the Statue of Liberty, you think, oh, um, there probably is an object like that and somebody took a photograph of it. Okay. But suppose that actually you saw somebody making this mm -hmm. and they were actually painting it on a piece of paper and they're just like such an incredibly good artist that it looks like a photograph. Okay. Well then that defeats your reason for thinking that there was a real object. Yeah. Right. Okay. So that's sort of like the case of the AI, right? Yeah. Like if, if you didn't know that somebody made it and like deliberately designed it to act as if it was conscious, then you would think that it was conscious. Yeah. Um, so, so a lot of times, so, um, Susan Schneider is a, a philosopher who's deep into the AI world. And That's she's right. My former grad school colleague. Oh, no way. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's awesome, man. I didn't co, know that. Oh, student. Yeah. That's at the same time. You guys were both studying at the same yep. time. Yep. Wow. At Rutgers, yeah. Dang, that's so good. Uh, holy cow, man. Um, Did you interview her? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, oh. now, now we're friends. Yeah, she's great. Okay, um, good. I forgot who her, who her dissertation uh, folder. Yeah, did, did, you, did you have folder as well? Uh, so I was advised by Peter Klein because I was writing about skepticism. Yeah. But did you, were you, I mean, did you take any grads? Oh, I took grads? a class from him. Yeah, yeah. Nice. I think... I think she told me that she gave him an actual heart attack in her thesis defense or in her uh, PhD dissertation defense, Wow, which, which is pretty wild. That's impressive. Yeah. yeah right. Yeah. Like that's a, you know, you know, you have a really good argument. <laughs> like there's a, this passage where Robert Nozick talks about coercive arguments, you know, yeah. how you're yeah. trying to force people to agree with you. Yeah. And he says like the best argument would be one where if you don't accept the conclusion, you die. <laughs> so she got so, really close. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Wow. That's wild. Um, she, she goes, she pulling from like Philip K. Dick stuff. She comes up with these consciousness tests and she's like, Hey, these only work if you don't train your AI with consciousness language of what it's like and how it feels to be a conscious being. Do you think there's anything to that? So like, if you, if you could see like the, the white paper, I forgot what they call these things, but they, they come out with a paper saying like, here's our AI and here's what it's like. And they say like, we explicitly did not use any consciousness language. Um, and yet here it is talking um, in ways, not using those words, but in ways that are picking out the same kind of experiences that we say are quality, 
qualitative experiences would that would you have more reason to think that one's conscious than the one that's been trained on maybe now you know this makes me want to read the actual things like what it Hmm. actually said yeah um and also like what it was trained on but i mean like you know my understanding is that they train these things on huge quantities of data where like it's not really possible for us to review all the data that was trained on yeah well yeah and i guess it depends on the type um i'm learning all this stuff now it's insane but yeah there's like feet forward ones and like like the chat gpt models is like well no obviously not and you've been trained on the whole internet um, but maybe there's other ones that has like more recursive style uh, learning yeah. and hasn't been trained. So Ben Gertzel wants to, he's like, hey, I need to, uh, we need to have, make a baby AI and then train it through interaction, through like a, a human in the loop at the whole time. Like here, uh, I'm going to show you stuff. I'm going to teach you concepts just like we do with with children. If you did, yeah. If you did it that way. I don't know. What, what what do you make of that? Would you think like m- maybe there's something uh, here? Well, so like the more similar it gets to a person, the more likely it is that it could be conscious. Okay. So like my view isn't that it's impossible to artificially create consciousness. Okay. It's just that it doesn't automatically happen just because you got the behavior right. Right. Totally. So now what do you have to do to make consciousness? So I don't know because I don't know why we're conscious in the first yeah. place. Yeah. And you have to duplicate whatever it is that caused us to have consciousness yeah which is something about the brain but i don't know what it was so it might be that you have to have the actual chemicals Mm. right the actual same materials but or it might not i don't know yeah (laughs) i i always wonder what what counts as artificial um because if you just make like an isomorph of the human brain some people are like that's not artificial intelligence like well they did it in a different way you know it didn't follow i guess if you like 3d print a sperm cell and an egg cell like that has no chain in the human race like it, that that seems kind of artificial right but you're yeah, yeah. you're just reproducing what biology has done yeah yeah so in that sense yes you can there could be an artificial intelligence right there could yeah. be an artificially created being that was conscious yeah like because okay. if it was physically identical <laughs> it had the same physical characteristics as um a person with a brain then would have consciousness but like that's not the controversy right i think the controversy is whether you could create an artificial conscious being that's made of completely different materials right like silicon yeah uh so earlier we were talking about psychophysical laws and i'm i'm wondering i used to go in real real strongly on like cyril's uh chinese room and ned block's chinese nation and and say look machine functionalism must be true in order for ai to be true and it obviously is not true or it, it uh, um, ascribes mentality to things that are obviously not conscious. So that's silly. But then I had some, some of my substance dualist friends say like, Hey, if you think that there are psychophysical laws, then why, why couldn't they hack those laws and, and have mentality and things that are, are not biologically similar to us? Do you, do you think that, do you think they could hack the psychophysical laws and produce consciousness in a, in a non-organic substrate? Wait, wait, what do you mean by hacking the laws? Yeah, so like usually the laws produce mentality in something like us. Yeah. But uh, I don't know, you create a different situation wherein those laws are realized, but not so, in the normal way. Yeah, so like if we figure out what the psychophysical laws are, then we can use that knowledge to create um, conscious beings artificially. Yeah. But it's an open question whether... Um, 
a being made out of silicon could sustain consciousness, right? So, because we don't know what the laws are, they may yeah. require a, a, an object made of actually the same materials as us. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> what do you think about that? Do you do you think that? To me, it's like I, I don't know. I've seen some Star Trek. I know you like Star Trek, and it's like, well, I don't know. It, it seems like it seems like the biology stuff, the the chemical stuff, doesn't. Why? Why would it be that? You know, why would it be these right chemicals? Um, it could end up being that way, but to me, it seems like that would be surprising. I don't know. I just want to get your intuitions on that. Um, I, I don't know. It doesn't sound surprising to me. I don't know. There would be chemicals. You know, the, I don't know. The stuff we're made of is pretty important to us, I guess. Um, you know, Searle sometimes gives these examples like, you know, I could run a computer simulation of digestion. Yeah. But it, no matter how good the simulation is, it will not digest any food. Yeah. Yeah. So Bernardo Castro. Yeah. Bernardo Castro always says something like that, where it's like, yeah, I could simulate uh, water on my desk, but my desk wouldn't be wet. And so, yeah, same, same exact thing um that's yeah i don't, I don't know <laughs> it's tricky yeah. man it, the, the whole thing's tricky well i just think as as a substance dualist um it's it it seems like especially because you go in for like uh you know eternal souls that like they they didn't have a beginning um it seems like the physical isn't as important maybe you could just say yeah it is they oh. just can never attach anything else but really what's doing all the work is the immaterial you know soul doesn't yeah. oh yeah so you know there's there's a bunch of immaterial souls that exist and i was going to say are out there but they're not out there because they have no location so oh, there gosh. are there's some immaterial souls i don't know how many i don't know if it's finitely or infinitely many but yeah. anyway and periodically one of them becomes embodied yeah and how does that happen i don't know you get the right physical configuration of some physical object Okay, and we yeah. know that human brains have the right configuration, but we don't know what else does. We don't know how wide the range is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of configurations of particles. Okay. Yeah. Anyway, so like a, the right kind of physical object comes along and um, it starts causing states in one of the immaterial um, objects, yeah. <laughs> the immaterial souls. And then the states of the immaterial soul also then cause effects on that brain or that, yeah. you know, that physical object. Um, so um, it's like, well, the immaterial mind is supposed to do something because it's supposed to affect, like, it's supposed to affect your brain and therefore your body. Yeah. But also it doesn't do anything by itself because like it has to have experiences caused by physical states of your brain. Right. So like, you know, when you're disembodied, I assume you don't have any mental states. And so then Yeah. Can... Yeah. I don't know. There's like, a, there's like this near death experience literature. And I, I don't know, like if I'm, I don't, I've never read like a bunch of it, but I'm like, if everyone, I'd have to have some error theory, which maybe it's out there for thinking that every single one of those is completely false. Yeah. But in, in like, in lieu of that, like then I'm like, or not in lieu, but if I don't have that, then it's like, well, I'm, it looks like someone is having a conscious experience outside of embodiment. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I, like a long time ago, I, tried to learn about this and it was like okay so what would be really important what would be really impressive would be um if somebody during a near-death experience had information acquired information by perception yeah right that they had no other way of acquiring yeah and then they should be able to report that to people after they're revived mm -hmm. 
Okay, but I couldn't find a convincing case of that. So like I found a case where people claimed that that happened and then it was debunked by skeptics. Okay. And then I guess, you know, I found the skeptics credible. Yeah. So that, you know, I don't know, some some like um, big NDE person will probably like hear this and say, no, yeah, no. That's right. Yeah, comments. drop drop it in the comments, folks. Let's hear it. Yeah. But anyway, like, okay, with a lot of things like this, there are a lot of amazing claims that are like this where somebody tells you some empirical facts that if true, are like really compelling evidence for some paranormal phenomenon. Mm. Okay. And then somebody else comes in, debunks them. Okay. And then the first person goes, well, you debunked like 10 of these, but there's like a few that you didn't succeed in debunking. And so then, and I think that happens a fair amount. And then yeah. how should you react? And then like my reaction is, well, because they succeed in debunking most of them, probably they're all bogus. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Just like an inductive kind of inference. Um, okay. Okay. I don't want to stick too long on the NDs. Someone, you know, drop them in there. Uh, we like, we like the interaction anyways. Let's hear about it. Um, I know someone's going to talk about someone seeing a, a, a number on top of a refrigerator and or whatever in a operating room. I, yeah, that's great. Drop them. I want to hear them. Uh, so I'm wondering about, so there's something about the physical brain that, um, gets the soul to like latch onto it or interact with it. What if, I mean, if you made a brain that was like 300 times the size of a human brain, um, you 3d printed it or something and it had a soul attached to it. Um, <clears throat> maybe there's more computing space. Maybe it's the same thing as us. It's just really big and like it hates itself because it's so gigantic, but maybe, you know, maybe there's <laughs> more computing product. That brain. Yeah. Right. Like self-conscious about it. But maybe you add more folds or something and it can it's it's smarter than us. Would that count as like to you, would that count as like super intelligent artificial intelligence? Oh yeah. So it, it could be super intelligent. I mean, like, I don't this isn't exactly what people mean by artificial <laughs> no, intelligence, yeah. but yeah. technically it's intelligent and it's artificial. So I yeah. guess you could say, right? But that, yeah. that's not really what people are talking about. But yeah. okay, yeah. So now um can you create such a thing and it would actually be alive and super intelligent? I don't know. Yeah. Maybe. Yeah. Like, but I, I mean, there might, there might be limits. Like it might be if, if you make it too big, then it dies or something. Yeah. Right. I wouldn't be shocked by that happening. I know. I'm, I'm thinking, cause then it would be like, well, why this exact size, you know, cause you shrink it down. Maybe you have a, a I can't use any words cause that'd be offensive, but you shrink it down and you have a little mini version of a brain or you, you know, magnify it and if there's some i don't know the, maybe well, maybe there's an argument for for theism here from like the uh instead of the cosmological constants like the exact perfect parameters for the human brain to be uh, you know well, receiving I mean, a soul. Like, like there are there are much smaller brains right in the other animals that is um, true and they they function obviously so but you know um and there are a little bit larger brains like, i guess elephants or whales you know yeah, yeah, like a blue whale, I'm sure it's probably pretty huge brain. I, I assume. Um, okay, but, you know, whether there could be one 300 times larger, I'm not sure. Yeah. Um, now, like, I don't know. I have no reason for thinking that it would die, but I wouldn't be shocked if that would happen because, yeah. I don't know, biology is like that. Yeah. Um, okay, last thing. This is kind of weird. But if there are a number, a limited number of uh, immaterial, uh, immortal souls that have never came into being but just always have existed uh 
if we continue on, you know, another hundred thousand years, maybe we make it to Mars and now there's like 7 billion people. Uh, if there's only six, wait, sorry, there's like 8 billion people. Let's say there's 16 billion people in a hundred thousand years from now. Yeah. And there's only uh, 15 billion souls. Yeah. Like what, you know, what happens is like, do those, are those zombies you think, or they're just oh, like uh, stillborns or. So some of the souls would have to be reused. Right? Okay. Okay, but so I assume that the number uh, is very large. Right? Okay. So the number of souls is very large. large, such that you wouldn't expect, okay, I don't know, this is kind of ad hoc, but anyway, so you wouldn't expect a soul to have to be reused. But, um, okay, so, you know, this is like, this is where my view about the mind starts to sound like weird paranormal stuff. But if you, <laughs> if you used up all of the minds, then you have to reuse a soul, which would mean that there would be um, a mind that had two bodies. There, there'd be somebody who had the experience of having two bodies at, at once, or are you talking about just reincarnation? Yeah, at the same time, right? So, like, oh, you know, okay. if the if the current population of the world is larger than the number of souls that exist, right? Then there have to be some souls that have like two bodies, and so like that that person should experience um, being in two places at once. So they should yeah. they should see two different scenes simultaneously, have two visual fields where different stuff is happening. Yeah. And then walking. Okay. And so if this happened, it like, so it looks to me like there would be amazing empirical predictions. Of that, right. <laughs> yeah. So like that person would be able to violate special relativity because um, like their two bodies could be in two separate locations. And then it looks like they could have superluminal communication. Yeah. So like the one body could do something that would take into account information that <clears throat> was given to the other body. Yeah, that that's like the best case scenario. The worst would be like just overlapping fields that you just can't, you know, interpret anything, right? Yeah, it might be very confusing. Yeah, but you know, given that you have two brains, um, you'd probably have you'd have you'd have double the information processing capacity, so you'd probably be able to handle it somehow. Yeah, well, um, unless like the phenomenologists are right about the unified phenomenal consciousness, that it's like one per person. Um, but maybe they're not right about that. Yeah. By the way, like I feel nervous about this because, like, you know, this is like an amazing empirical prediction, <laughs> which I'm sure and not amazing in like a great way to happen. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but if it does happen, yeah, then that's like really you have empirical evidence for your theoretical. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> yeah. Right. Although, um, see the, and also like you know, the theory is kind of unfalsifiable because. Although there's that possibility that would support the theory, um, if that never happens, it could just be that there's infinitely many souls. Right. So, yeah. Or just one more than we ever get to, right? Yeah, that's true. Like, yeah. It could always just be a larger number. Although, well, the thing is, like, um, you know, say there's, um, say there's 20 billion souls and the population is 8 billion. Okay, well, but if we continue for like a few centuries, we should just expect sometimes just by chance there to be a soul <laughs> that um, occupies two bodies. Oh, yeah. Yeah, unless there's some rigid rule going on in the universe that's orchestrating things. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, maybe maybe it's just like souls that are presently disembodied are always a better candidate for connecting to a new brain. Right, 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 right. Yeah. There's some kind of, yeah, it's easier to do that than the others. 
So even though it's not impossible, still it just never comes up. Yeah, that's good. Well, this is we went all over the place. This is so good. I really appreciate it. Thanks for uh thanks for helping me and and disabusing me of certain Davidsonian views. I still got to choose chew on them some more, but this is awesome, man. I, I appreciate what you do so much. Uh for my audience, that's great, you know, all that stuff too, but just for me personally, like I've I've learned a bunch from you. So I really appreciate it. Oh, yeah. Uh it's great to be here and, you know, I I appreciate being invited because it's yeah, fun. definitely. So I, I have the background uh, Thanos taking the Mind Stone out of Vision from uh, from Infinity War, and I I did that for you because I think you're kind of like Thanos taking the mind out of the machines. You guys, <laughs> you guys don't get to have these, so that was that's the background for all the folks who were watching. Yeah, excellent. Yeah, all right. That's gonna have to do it for now, folks. This has been Parker's Pensies, and as always, all glory to God.